Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And if you happen to be using one of our few Bibles, you'll find that on page 888 of those Bibles. Now, we're in the second week of a five-part series on the vision of our church, the vision of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. And we're asking this question, who, who are we called to be? Okay, we're, we're here. God's people assembled together. We're, try, we're a church in the city. Who are we supposed to be? And if you were to look on the um, inside of the front cover of your uh, order of worship, you'll find the vision statement of our church printed there, which I'll, I'll read again for us. Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church seeks to be a community that both glorifies and enjoys God in all that we do. Together we are pursuing authentic worship of Christ, a growing reliance on the gospel of grace, deep connection with one another, and faithful service to the whole of Williamsburg and the world. And this morning we're going to be talking about that first component of that, that we are together pursuing authentic worship of Christ. Now before we turn to our text in John chapter 4, let's pray together. Father, we, um, we come to you from just a lot of different places, some of us very distracted, some of us very encouraged, some of us who've really struggled this week, some of us glad to be here, some of us wondering why we are here, some of us wondering where you are. Father, wherever we might be, we pray that right now you would speak to us by your Spirit, and you would make this passage come alive for us, that we might see what you have for us here because we're in people in need of you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're reading from John chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 30, and then pick up again at verses 39 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field of Jacob, the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Then picking up in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Okay, this morning we're talking about this part of our our vision statement that has to do with worship, that we would be people who authentically worship Christ. And what does that mean? Okay, well, this passage centers on one thing. Um, And you'll see it in verse 23 and 24, this phrase that we're to be worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And this morning we're going to try to get to a little bit of what that means. But in order to do that, we're going to look at at three things in this passage about what it says about worship. First, that worship is the engine that drives our lives for every one of us. Worship is the engine that drives your life. Second thing is that Jesus came to heal our worship. And the third thing, that authentic worship has a certain effect in our lives. Okay, so the first thing here, that worship is the engine that drives our lives. First 15 verses here, we see the beginning of this conversation between Jesus and this woman. A little bit of background in the first few verses there, 1 through 6, you you see what brought Jesus to this point. He's been in Judea near Jerusalem. He's been preaching. His disciples have been baptizing people. It's this huge lay renewal movement out in the countryside. And it says, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, begin to get nervous about this. They're noticing what Jesus is doing. So Jesus, who's biding his time, he he decides to withdraw from Judea, and he decides to go back to Galilee, which is north of this region that he's in. He goes back to Galilee, which is kind of his home base for most of the three years of his ministry. But here's the dilemma for Jesus. In order to go from Judea near Jerusalem up to Galilee, he has to go through a region called Samaria. And the problem with Samaria in the eyes of the Jews was that it was filled with Samaritans. Okay? And, and here, here's, the, here's the problem that they had. A little bit, little bit of history. 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in, and they deport everybody in that area of Israel. Almost everybody. And they import people from other nations. And those people who come in from those other nations begin to intermarry with the Jews that are left. And they begin to, the Jews who are left begin, as they intermarry, they begin to worship other gods. And their worship becomes corrupted. And their lineage becomes, in the eyes of the Jews, corrupted. So years later, in fact, in the time of Jesus' day, by this point, 
the, um, the true Jews, those who lived in Judea in the southern kingdom, looked at the people in the north and they said, you don't really have any share in our life. Your worship is corrupted. Your bloodline is corrupted. And we're not going to have anything to do with you. They despised the Samaritans. And there are a lot of good faithful Jews that if they had to go from Jerusalem up to Judea, or excuse me, up to uh, Galilee, they, instead of going straight through Samaria, they would, they would go east of the Jordan River into Gentile land, and they would they do, they do a big circle, a big half circle up to the north, just so they could avoid the Samaritans. That was how badly many of them detested them. They didn't want to even be in their land. They certainly didn't want to interact with them. But we've got Jesus, who very deliberately takes the shorter route, going through Samaria. Um, he's willing to take that trip, and we're going to see that he's got an important, uh, an important appointment that he's trying to keep. And so this passage opens up. We've got Jesus. He's thirsty. He's tired. They've been traveling. He sends this, his disciples into, into this Samaritan town to get food. And he sits down next to this well. And it says it's the sixth hour. Okay, so it's about noon. It's about the hottest part of the day. Jesus is thirsty, and he's sitting there. And a woman comes up. And he turns and he talks to this woman. And he says, would you please draw some water out of the well for me? Uh, you know what it's like to be in a situation like that where you're, where you're just really thirsty. You've been working hard. It's a hot day. It's any given day in Williamsburg in the middle of the summer, and you're incredibly thirsty. I was with some friends this weekend who were telling me they have four children, and their children suffer from this condition um, that they said it's, it's called um, vehicular dehydration. <laughs> they said every time they get in the car, their kids are suddenly completely overwhelmingly thirsty. Like, it doesn't matter if they were just drinking water inside, they go in there, and by the time they get out of the driveway, their children are parched, and they're uh, to the point of, you know, mutiny. So every time they get in the car, they've got to give each kid a little water bottle, make sure they're filled, save them from vehicular dehydration. Well, Jesus is thirsty. He's been traveling. He needs a drink, and this woman shows up. This woman that he has an appointment for, and when he offers, when he asks her for a drink, there would have been flashing red lights that are going off in her head. And flashing red lights for the people who are reading this text for the first time, and certainly for Jesus' disciples when they return, because you don't do what Jesus is doing. He's breaking these, uh, these social norms, these norms of appropriateness, and even speaking to her. So there's a lot of things wrong with this picture. Jesus is a man, and he's talking to a woman to whom he's not related. Okay, in their culture, you just didn't do that. Good, polite people didn't do that. She is a Samaritan, somebody despised by the Jews. And here he is, a Jewish man speaking to her. You didn't do that. Good Jewish men didn't do that. And certainly good Jewish rabbis, good Jewish teachers, wouldn't do something like that. And she feels the inappropriateness. Look at in verse 9. She's like, excuse me? What are you doing asking me for a drink? And why this woman? And why is she here? We said, as the text points out, that it's the sixth hour. Okay, so it's noon. She's the only woman at the well. Because in her town and in her culture, the women of the town would come out to the well to get water, either in the morning when it's cool outside, or in the afternoon when it's cool outside. But if you're smart, you didn't go in the middle of the day at the hottest part of the day after you were already incredibly thirsty. So something is going on with this woman. Something that's keeping her from coming out to the well when the rest of the woman, women would come out to the well. When they would be with their friends, when they'd be talking, when they'd be interacting. This woman is alone. Something is going on in her life. 
that she's there by herself in the middle of the day asking for this drink. And Jesus starts this whole conversation with her talking about physical thirst. But it changes. Have you ever had one of those conversations with people where you're, you're talking and then gradually you start to realize that maybe you're not talking about the same thing and you're sort of missing each other? Like maybe you're talking about a neighbor and you think you're talking about the neighbor across the street and they think they're talking about the neighbor next to you and suddenly you find out they're in the hospital and what do you, you know, this, this confusion, you're talking past each other. And you get the feeling of this in this conversation because Jesus starts talking about this living water and she, and she doesn't seem to get it. She doesn't seem to be following him when he starts to talk about this. He starts to talk about this deeper thirst that she's got. Look at verse 10. He says, you know, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, and if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, what's going on? The gift of God. He goes on to talk about this living water being a gift from God. And Jesus says to her that essentially he says, if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I would give you this living water. And she says, well, we're sitting next to the well and it's deep and you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get that living water out? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Uh, because when she heard the term living water, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus means much more. But what she could have heard in context, and it would have made sense with this word, is she could have heard flowing water. Okay? So they're standing next to a well, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you I'm gonna give you living water, flowing water. And she's thinking, maybe there's a stream around here somewhere, and there's a better water source than this. In fact, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He dug this well for us. Do you know about better water around here than he did? And then Jesus goes on and says um, that he does, in fact, have better water. Because what happens with this water that she's drinking? She's out here at the well. She's thirsty. He's thirsty. She draws water. She gets a drink. In a few hours, even if it's the best water in the world, she's going to be thirsty again. But Jesus is talking about this water that somehow is going to well up in her. And he says, you're not going to be thirsty anymore. And so she's hooked. Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty again, so I won't have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking very concretely, but he's got her attention. Okay, then you get to verse 16. Do you ever read the Gospels and you, you hear somebody say something or hear somebody ask Jesus a question and then he starts saying something that you think has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on? You're like, did, did, were you listening to her? That's not what she asked. That's not what she's talking about. Suddenly here in verse 16, Jesus is talking about something that seems like it's coming from out of left field. Look at what he says. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. This abrupt question. What's he saying to her? Okay, if you want this thing that I'm talking about, this living water, then first go get your, your husband and bring him back. And she says, I have no husband. You can just sort of imagine her getting a little cagey at this point. I, I have no husband. And he says, you're telling the truth. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And you're now shacking up with somebody you're not married to. You're right. You're right. And she immediately starts backpedaling even further. Starts getting into these questions of worship. But what's Jesus doing in her life? Why is he bringing this up? They're talking about water and suddenly he's saying, let me lay bare your life in front of your eyes and mine. You've had five husbands and now you're living with somebody who's not your husband. What's he doing? He's trying to get to the fact that she is more deeply thirsty than she knows. 
She's out here for a drink of water, but if you look at her life, you would see that she is longing for something that she doesn't have and hasn't been able to find. And Jesus is putting his finger on it. What's going on in the life of someone who's had five spouses? Okay, that sounds extreme even in our society. And in Jesus' day, even the most liberal rabbi would say three is the limit. You know, it's, it's a little ridiculous past that. But that you would have had five spouses. What's this woman trying to do? What's going on in her life? What's she looking to that would somehow make her life work? What does she think is going to fill her up? What's going to satisfy her? Five husbands are now a live-in um, lover. Maybe it's the sex. Maybe it's the security that comes from being attached in her society to a man who can take care of her. Maybe she was effectively saying this, unless there's somebody like that in my life, unless I'm attached to a man, I have nothing, I am nothing, and I am thirsty. She looks at the thirst in her life and says, this is how I can quench it. I will go from one to another, and maybe I will find the right one, the right man, the right relationship, the right thing that's going to patch up this hole in my life. Jesus' question exposes something for her, lays it bare. There's some sort of thirst going on in her life. In fact, we see that her thirst points to the topic at hand that Jesus comes to and that we're talking about today, worship. Let me give us a, a, just sort of a working definition of, of worship. Worship is the heart response of thirsty people to whatever they think is going to satisfy that thirst. Okay, worship is the heart response of thirsty people to whatever it is they think will actually quench that thirst that's actually going to satisfy them. In other words, Jesus is laying bare the life of this woman who is thirsty and trying to desperately quench that thirst with something that's actually leaving her empty. We'll see that in a minute. You know what it's like to have this, maybe, to have this drive. There's something that you're thinking, I need this. My life has holes in it, and I need this to patch it up. I need this to be the thing that my life is about. Uh, soft drink Sprite used to have this old um, uh, slogan, obey your thirst. And we do. We go after the things that we are thirsty for. She was a worshiper. She was somebody who was thirsty, and she was worshiping the thing that she thought would meet that thirst, that would satisfy her deepest need, that would quench what ultimately for her was really a spiritual thirst. So let me just ask us this. What are the things that we are drawn to? Now, our lives might not be as uh, blatantly over the top as this woman's was. Okay, again, messy by any standards from the outside looking in. But what are the things that we're thirsty for? What are the things that we think, I've got to have this in my life, or I will be incomplete, or my life will fall apart? Jesus had conversations with people like this all the time. Think about the one that he had with the rich young ruler. This rich young ruler, young man, comes up to him and says, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus talks through this problem with him, and at the end he says to this particular man, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the text says that the man walks away sad because he had a lot of stuff. Because he sees something in Jesus that he's drawn to, but his money gets in the way. Because he's filling his thirst with that. And he can't break away from it. 
His life has become centered on that. His life is about, in one sense, worshiping that, looking to that to fill him up and to quench this thirst. So what is it for us? Maybe it's not what it is for this woman, or maybe it is. Maybe it is a relationship. Um, Maybe it is money, as it was for the rich young ruler. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's a million things that seem trivial. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your grandchildren. What are the things that just so grab a hold of our hearts that we think this is the thing that is finally going to fill me up and I'm going to devote myself to that? And look out, because if you try to take that away from me, my life will feel like it's falling apart and I will lash out. What are the things... Interesting about this woman, she's got this gaping hole that we look at, these five husbands, but she's also got another thing that she's worshiping. Jesus goes into this conversation with her where she says, okay, you say, your people say that we're supposed to, to worship on, in Jerusalem, and we say that we're supposed to worship here in this mountain that she could have turned and looked at from where she was standing, Mount Gerizim. And hundreds of years back, the Samaritans, when they got rejected by the rest of their people, said, fine, we're going to build our own temple, and we're going to put it on this mountain, and we're going to worship here. And that mountain, had long, that temple had long since been destroyed, but that was still the center of worship for the Samaritans. So she is not only um, a five-time married person living with somebody she's not married to, she's also a deeply religious person. And it's her own religion that stands in her way as well. You say that we're supposed to worship there. We say we're supposed to worship here. It's not that different than the conversations Jesus had with people of his own religion, the Pharisees, caught up in their religious observance, drinking from that fountain, trying to fill themselves up. And Jesus says, all of you are missing me. And that's what he's saying to this woman. He says, the day is coming when you're not going to worship here on this mountain and we're not going to worship in Jerusalem. The Father is looking for true worshipers. Another way of translating that would be authentic worshipers genuine worshipers, people who worship in spirit and in truth. And we see in this woman's life that her misdirected worship leaves her empty. Jesus may well have had this verse in the back of his mind from Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 2.13. One of the many verses in the Old Testament that, that used this illustration of thirst to talk about this greater spiritual thirst that we have. And, Jesus, and Jeremiah says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. In other words, God is saying, you've forsaken me, the one who can satisfy your thirst, and instead you're going around digging wells in other places, trying to find a drink of water there, but those wells can't hold enough water for you. There's not enough in them to actually quench the thirst that you have. And this woman's worship doesn't satisfy her either. She's gone through five men that didn't satisfy her. She's asking these questions about, do we worship on Mount Gerizim? Her official religion hasn't satisfied her. And Jesus comes to her and says, only I can give you, only I can give you the water that you really need. Leads us into our second point. Jesus came to heal our worship. Look at verses 23 through 26. Jesus begins to speak about what true worship is. The hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers, the authentic worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. If you notice, John doesn't go on and explain here what that means. And in fact, there's nowhere in scripture that says spirit and truth. And let me give you a concise definition of that. But do you feel the evocativeness of this? Spirit and in truth. And the resonances maybe that sets off. Okay, what does it mean that we would be people who worship in truth? What does it mean that we'd be people in wor- who worship in spirit? He goes on and says God is spirit. And he's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me just suggest a couple things for us. Jesus stands up, this is later in John chapter 7, in the middle of one of the feasts, and he says this, If anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What's Jesus saying in our text? True worshipers are those who worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers are those who have been met by the Spirit of God himself who have had God come in and invade their lives, who have brought real spiritual life to them as a gift. Jesus says the real worshipers, the authentic worshipers, are those who have been made alive by the Spirit of God himself. And how did that happen? Spirit and truth. Elsewhere, Jesus, John chapter 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Throughout the book of John, the Gospel of John, there's this play on truth. And it's this objective content, things that are true, but it's brought in this person who is the truth. It's Jesus saying, if you're going to be an authentic worshiper, you are somebody who's brought to life by the Spirit, and it comes to you by my ministry. I am the truth. I am the truth that stands at the center of your life. I am the truth who stands at the center of your worship. Authentic worship is worship that is, in, that is enabled by the Spirit, and it is worship that centers on Jesus himself, who is the truth. And he comes to this woman and he says, you're not going to find it in all the things that you are chasing after. You're not going to find it in these men. And you're not going to find it in the trappings of formal religion that you've surrounded yourself with. He said, true worshipers, real worshipers, are those who are thirsty and come to me and receive this drink and are enabled to become worshipers in spirit and in truth. He's saying this is what you are thirsty for. This is the heart of what you're longing after. And this is what Jesus offers us, that we as a people, that we as a church, would be people who worship in spirit and truth. That we know Jesus, that we know the gift of his spirit that he brings. But what's interesting about this, he doesn't just leave us with this, with this image of worship. John also tells us about an effect, a consequence of worship in this woman's life. And this is in verses 28 and 30, and then on 39 through 42. 28, there's this, um, there's just this small little detail that I think speaks volumes about what's happened in this woman's life. Why did she come out there in the middle of a hot day, spurned by her, you know, by the women in her in her town, in the middle of her shame for her life. She comes out to get a drink in the middle of the day because it's the only time she can get out there and she's thirsty. And what does she do? She has this conversation with Jesus 
where he talks about this greater thirst that she has. And she leaves her water jar there and goes back to town. She, it's the reason she came out, so that she would get something to drink. And she forgets about that. Because something else has captured her imagination now. She's met somebody who's told her everything she's ever done. She's met somebody who's come and offered her this spiritual life that would well up into real worship. And what does she do? She leaves her water jar, and she goes back to the very town that has rejected her and says, y'all have to come meet this man that I've just met. He's told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah, the one we are waiting for? Could this be him? And the people believe her, this outcast woman, broken all these social barriers, breaks another one by coming back to him and saying, come. And they do. They come out and they meet Jesus. And he stays with them for several days. And look what happens to this whole city at the end of this. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus goes to this obscure little corner of Samaria and he meets this one broken woman worshiping all the wrong things, thirsting after all the wrong things. And he brings her living water. He brings her life that literally turns her life around and turns the life around of her entire community. Because when she hears about this, she does not keep it to herself. But she goes to the people she knows and says, you must come hear this yourself. Not only does Jesus come in and have to heal our worship, authentic worship does something to us. It sends us out. It sends us out with this living water that we found. Why? So that other people might worship too. Because they are desperately thirsty also. And this woman knew that about her town. And may we know that about our family and our friends and Williamsburg and the world. Jesus says, I came to make you authentic worshipers and to call others into worship as well. It is his gift for us. It is the gift that we have to call other people to as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would turn us more and more into authentic worshipers. People who know the good gift of life and the long, cool drink of eternal life that you give us in Jesus, the refreshment of our souls, the thing that we need most. And may we respond in worship and may we go out in response and bring the glory of that news to other people as well. And may you transform not only our individual lives and not only this church, but our whole city. And continue your good work of transforming our whole world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.